Let me take just a moment and echo a sentiment of well wishes and many thanksgivings to you for the kindnesses and the compliments that you have shared welcoming us back today. We're so delighted to be back with the congregation here and we're thankful for your prayers and for all the things that you do for us in terms of the gospel meetings that you allow us to be a part of. We certainly miss being able to be with you here, but we rest assured that those gospel messages proclaimed were very powerful to the point and certainly how blessed we are to have men here who not only can do so with such easiness, at least in terms of the presentation, but less than so powerful. This is Denise and my first Sunday of being able to enjoy the songs that are on the wall to my left. Can't we be thankful for the new books? Thankful for those who, who make sure the transitions and all that has gone as smoothly as it has. We're just so blessed to be able to appreciate the talents of each and every one used for the service, of course, of the great God of heaven. As you can see on the wall to my left, a lesson entitled The Dash of Life will be what I would invite you to consider today, The Dash of Life. Maybe some initial comments might well be these. The comments, of course, are very general, but I hope that they already are prompting to some of the great ways that you and I can feel the measure of what God allows us to know both by potential and by possibility. Isn't life so richly amazing? Oh, it's true it has its problems, and it's true that there are some unpleasantries occasionally, but think of the richness of it, the opportunities to appreciate what you and I can do by virtue of talent, our loving husbands or wives, our children that we're so proud and delightful of. Life has so many things that can bring smiles to our face, and it really can bring a matter of great interior feeling of peace and harmony. But you'll notice at the bottom of that slide, by that very same token, as we feel those kinds of appreciations and blessings, it's a bit easy, isn't it, to lose sight of what's the most important and it's easy to, of course, become a bit defocused on that point. Surely then might I ask you to revisit arguably the most anchoring truth presented to you and me anywhere in the Word of God. The anchor that will not only help you and me make sure that we don't lose sight of that which is really the most important, but we can understand it in the way I hope will be a very memorable thing today. The next slide, we'll start with some comments, though we won't stay on the slide very long. I'll come back to it in just a moment. I said that for the following reason. That slide again with some mere thoughts quickly takes you to this one. I can say I'm going to have to check these batteries pretty soon. All of us know exactly what that is. Five distinct pictures that show something exceedingly common. You and I have experienced it many times as we have visited locations in which dozens if not hundreds of things like those are seen. But what is the idea? You'll notice that sometimes as you look at them, they're small and sometimes they're simple. Sometimes gravestones are much more elaborate, large and ornate. Sometimes they have writing on it that indicates a few brief words about the life of the one lived. Maybe a very precious mother or a very well thought of and respected father. Aside from that, as you look at them, perhaps you're not close enough to see, but even the languages are different. The one you'll notice at the top left is of a Jewish individual. 
And some of the writing at the bottom of that reminds you of Hebrew letters. The one at the top right is actually a German individual. If you could read that close enough, you'd probably find it very difficult to understand it. It's written in German. You'll notice the one at the bottom left, very straightforward, and here from our own United States of America. The one, of course, in the middle at the bottom, an even more challenging language, that's Russian. The idea is still the same. We understand the certainty that corresponds to the matter of death, but what about these gravestones? And what about some of the features? As you look at some of the differences, might I ask you to notice there is one thing as simple and as unassuming as it may be that's common to all of them. It is that that will be the topic of the lesson this morning. Before I give away what it is, I'd like to share with you a poem. I'll leave that on the wall so that you can think about it as you listen to this poem. It was written by Ron Tranwell, and it reads like this. I knelt there at the headstone of one I loved and cried. Name with dates of birth and death were perfectly inscribed. I pondered these two dates and how little they both mean when compared to the tiny dash that lies there in between. The dash serves as an emblem of our time here on the earth, and although small, it stands for all our years of life and worth. And our worth will be determined by how we live each day. We can fill our dash with goodness or waste our life away. To ourselves as well as others, let's be honest, kind, and true. And every day, live the way that God would have us to. May we look for opportunities to do a worthy deed and reach out with compassion to those who are in need. For if our hearts are full of love throughout our journey here, we'll be loved by all who knew us and our memory they'll hold dear. And when we die, these memories will bring grateful loving tears to all whose lives were touched by the dash between our years. The name of that poem is the dash between. And that was the idea that I wanted you to notice before. On all those gravestones, and yea, it's a very common thing, there are dates representative of the person's birth and of death, but then there's a dash that rests in between. Why don't you think about your dash with me this morning while, of course, I think about my own. And as you do that, why don't you again revisit very briefly some points about it in the following way. I'd like you to make five observations about those gravestones and specifically about the dash that relates to it. As you think about your dash and mine, observation number one, I don't know if you were able to notice in passing, you could probably easily calculate the age of death of many of those people because, of course, you could just subtract the birth from the death date. And if you were close enough to do that, one of the things you'd readily agree was there was a wide range of considerations. Some of them lived a number of years upon this earth, and others of them were much, much briefer. But no matter how long particularly that was, could I ask you to notice, it is very much to our appreciation to observe, it's always brief. I realize when a person is young, and you appreciate the vigor and vitality of youth, that sometimes the length of life may seem so long. It may seem as if death is so far into the future that it really is not even worthy of consideration. 
But that's a mistake. It really is. Because even at its longest, our life upon this earth and the flesh is very brief. I would ask you to notice what the Bible would call to your attention and mine as it relates to this. The psalmist said it like this in Psalm 39, verse number 5. My days are as in handbreadth. You and I realize in terms of the measure of things, you know that we can use a yardstick or we can use some other types of measuring devices, some of which are exceedingly lengthy. But in the ancient era, a handbreadth, if you measured something with the breadth of your hand, that was a reminder of how reasonably small the object of interest was. My, breath, my life compared to a handbreadth. Not only that, you may notice in Job chapter 7, verse 6, Job, although himself in some very difficult considerations, was quick to say, My life is swifter than a weaver's shuttle. Have you ever seen a spinning wheel? Maybe some of the ladies or even some of the men, as we have either watched it or it's ourselves done it, you know how fast that wheel can spin, and you know how quickly the particular elements in that shuttle can move. Job said, that's the way my life is. Finally, in Job 9.25, same writer, same speaker, my days are swifter than a post. I remember when I was a young boy reading a verse like that, it bothered me. I didn't understand. I think of a fence post as being sturdy and stable and never moves. That's not what Job was referring to. You and I think about a postman, a person that delivers the mail. In the earlier days of our country, the person who delivered the mail, the postman, he rode a horse and he rode it fast because he had messages to deliver. That's the way Job's using the word. And that was a confirmation of the fact that those posts, those individuals that delivered messages and mail, they did so with extreme haste and speed. And Job said, that's the way our life is. It passes so swiftly. Surely in light of those things, you'll notice one of the most interesting comparisons is found in the heart of the New Testament. In James 4, verses 13 and 14, we have a reminder that our life is compared to a vapor that appeareth for a little while and vanisheth away. As I studied a bit about that word vapor that appears there, I have asked you to notice the actual Greek word's definition. It has reference to steam. It has reference to a mist or vapor. Think about the way an iron works. Perhaps as you iron clothes and you realize as that water boils and the steam appears and is nearly instantly gone as it emerges from the base of the iron. Your life and mine is compared in all of these verses to something that's brief. That brevity may be one final pair of comments. Even at its longest, the psalmist said it like this in Psalm 39.5, that our days are as nothing in the sight of God. And you and I know that our God is one who can so appreciably notice that He isn't bound by the features of time. The past, the future, they're all easily understood and known to Him. And yet your life and mine, even at its longest, is as nothing before Him. Surely in light of those things, Psalm 90 verse 4 reminds us that our time here ought to be considered in a very special light. Think about Methuselah. If it's true that one day is with the Lord's a thousand years and a thousand years is one day, 
And the psalmist even affirmed that a thousand years are as nothing, even as yesterday in God's sight. So think about the life of Methuselah. 969 long years, Genesis 27 tells us, or rather Genesis chapter 5, verse 27. And aren't we told as you and I think about life like that? Doesn't it lead us to a second observation? If it's true that the Bible reminds us it's brief, we know that there is, of course, the certainty of this death. And why don't we develop that like this? I realize as we contemplate death, the first thing I'd like to say is our lesson today is not all about death. That is merely an observation along the way. Our lesson today is about life. But surely we would be remiss not to notice all those gravestones and only it was marked the demise, the passing, the deceasing of that individual. As you look at death, may we keep in mind it is a certainty. For some, that's not a pleasant thought. May I submit to you that for those who are prepared for it, it ought to harbor no apprehension. Think about some of these verses. And as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment. It's an appointment. It is a statement affirmed for you and me in Hebrews 9.27 about a matter that is going to occur. And if the Lord delays His coming, every one of us will experience it. That death reminds us of some Old Testament characters and how they approached it. You notice particularly in 1 Kings 2, verse number 2, David, himself an old man, and approaching the day of his own death, he said, I must go the way of all the earth. David understood it well. He knew that it was merely a matter of what is the ending of this life in the flesh. In 2 Samuel 23, chapter 12, verse 23, David one more time commented, his own baby boy had just died. He said, he shall not return to me. I shall go to him. We pass through this life in one direction. There is no reliving it. There's no going back, but there is a point in which we appreciate the certainty of that death. Surely, as you notice it, you and I know that medical science has come a long, long way in the last few thousand years. There's no question about that. But have you ever pondered the fact that lifespans today aren't that much longer than they were, oh, about 3,000 years ago? Think back to the words of the psalmist in Psalm 90, verse 10. The days of our years are threescore years and ten. And if by reason of strength they be fourscore years, yet is their days labor and sorrow. And we soon are cut off and fly away. Notice, 70 or age 80, and that was 3,000 years ago. When Denise and I, sometimes as we ride in the car, we hear obituaries. It's easy enough to notice the person says that the person passed away, age 48, age 69, age 51, age 27. May we ever keep in mind the certainty of death, but you and I don't know the moment of it. And the certainty of that takes us, of course, to that sentence from the days of Eden. It doesn't matter how much progress medical science will make, it will never set aside the reality of death because it's an appointment, an appointment from heaven, an appointment that God has vouchsafed in the Scriptures. Maybe that appointment leads us to another observation. If death is this certainty that you and I have observed, what is the uniform assertion of the Word of God? Isn't it the following? 
that dash that's representative of that time between birth and death needs to be devoted to wise living. Wise from the perspective of what God's Word teaches. Let's notice that as follows. Same chapter that we read a moment ago, look two verses further. The same chapter that commented about 70 or maybe 80 years for the length of a lifespan. Two verses later, So teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. Even David commented, The wise thing to do is to carefully understand the fact that life in the flesh isn't permanent and so to live in light of that death and to live wisely, to live appropriately, to live in harmony with that which will allow one to meet death in a pleasing way. Maybe that wisdom leads us to some of these comments. Psalm 39, verse number 4, had spoken to us again about that brevity of life, but it spoke of it in a way that urges for you and me to live with a degree of wisdom. To live in wisdom, understanding, of course, that our life here is going to follow, of course, meet at a moment of judgment. One of the last comments on that slide. The psalmist was by no means the only one that brought us to that recognition. I put in quotation marks that statement from the writings of Paul in Ephesians chapter 5. So then let us walk circumspectly, he said. Ephesians 5.15. That particular word circumspectly, maybe you and I would have a wonderment about, about what that suggests. The word literally means carefully or accurately. And Paul thus admonished those in Ephesus, make sure that you walk with care and with a circumspect character in wisdom. Are you and I any less needful of that instruction today? What about the dash that's your life and mine? When the time comes for you and me to pass on, it doesn't matter what the preacher has to say that day. You and I by our life have preached our own eulogy. And a preacher can say whatever he wants, but the people there will know what kind of life I lived, and they'll know what kind of life you lived. And if the preacher doesn't describe what is known about the truth of your life, do you suppose his words will be enough to get you into heaven after, after this life? Well, of course not. You and I then need to appreciate, what about the dash? Am I living wisely every day? What about you? Are you living obediently every day because this is what's going to be opened at the judgment? What men may think and what others have considered will fade away into nothingness as the books are opened, Revelation 20, verse number 11, and your life and mine is judged out of it. That's what genuine wisdom is, isn't it? Living wisely is living by way of the teachings of the Word of God. Faith cometh by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. As we develop that thought more in just a moment, aren't we, you and I, then admonished, if we're going to live wisely, we have to put away things that are foolish. And the devil brings so many of them before you and me. Foolishness in terms of the activities he encourages in the human family, beverage, alcohol, other kinds of features of sexual infidelity and problems in life, things like gambling, all those have to be put away, eliminated, removed from life because wise living demands it. And that wise living, perhaps as you close that thought, brings us to cast a spotlight for a moment 
on what is so often used by the devil to capture our attention and to make us forget the dash. Remember, we aren't saved just because we were born, and we aren't saved just because we died. What about the dash? What about those years in between? When the time comes for you and me to leave this place, what will be the remembrance of your life and mine? What about the, the significance and importance attached to the dash that you and me? Well, these things that I've listed at the bottom, there is no question that in our modern age, in our land carefully here in America, there can become an emphasis upon things. That was a problem in the New Testament too, wasn't it? That is to say, in the era in which our master lived, because he had so much to say about it. In Luke chapter 12, beginning in verse 15, you remember that Jesus had just been asked a question. It was about one who had a bit of a contention with the inheritance being divided between he and his brother. Jesus quickly responded in verse 15, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesseth. That sounds as timely today as it did then, doesn't it? Your worth and mine isn't attached to the nature of the money that we have. It must go much more profoundly and deeper than that. And the Lord proceeded at that moment to share that episode so memorable. There was a farmer and his crops brought forth so abundantly, so much so that he had a decision to make, what am I to do? My barns won't hold it. This is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and I'll build bigger ones. And then I'll say to my soul, Soul, take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry, for thou hast many goods laid up for many years. However, that wasn't the finality of that presentation, for the Lord had a matter to say. He said, This night thy soul shall be required of thee, and then who shall these things be which thou hast provided? If we attach then our meaning, our existence to that which we own, what happens at death? For we're going to leave all that behind, every bit of it, every bit of it. Maybe it would be fair to say those things that we often consider. Didn't Jesus remind us about the nature of what things are really important? Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Matthew 6, 19-21. You'll notice the finality of that was, where your treasure is, there will your heart be. That says a lot about your dash and mine. Where's your treasure and where's mine? I trust that we are making sure it's not on anything on this earth per se. But finally, you'll notice the tragedy that goes with the choices that some make in light of those things of life. There was that rich man in Luke 16 who fared sumptuously every day and his clothing was very exquisite and rare. And of course, you and I well know he had a little interest in the welfare of anybody else, including Lazarus. But all that changed after death. Suddenly he was very remorseful. In that he understood easily the terrible shape in which he then was. Isn't that a reminder that those things that are so often mentioned with such vitality and eagerness, they won't save. 
I'm reminded about that text in Revelation 18. Wasn't it there that John the Revelator, as he gave a description of the doom of ancient Rome, that is to say that mighty and glorious empire that met its end and its fate, isn't it amazing that even John, he was there able to affirm her riches were not able to save her. Couldn't save her from the judgment and verdict of the God of heaven. And such will be true also eternally of you and of me. Surely this fourth point asks us to think about the words of Jesus. In Mark the 8th chapter, near the close of it, verses 36 and 37, Jesus very poignantly made some observations and along the way asked some remarkable questions. What will a man give in exchange for his soul? What shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Have you pondered the richness attached to this world? There's so much land and real estate values, of course, are high. And there's so much wealth, money and diamonds and silver and gold. If you had all of it, if you had all of it, if it was in your name or mine, and upon death my soul is lost, what have I benefited? What have I gained? I have gained nothing, really, because I realize that all eternity stands in the future. For me, and there is nothing like the rich man understood that can alter that fate. When we close that slide, the words of Paul will lead us in a way to our fifth and final observation. But those words of Paul, for the love of money is the root of all evil which while some coveted after they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. 1 Timothy 6 verse 10. So if it's true that the meaning and the worth of life isn't in riches, and if it's not in these other things we've considered, the final observation is a very profound one. And it'll not take us long to develop it. What is the focus of life? Why am I here and why are you here? What is the objective and the mission of existence? It might well be that that's one of the most profound questions that any philosopher has ever wrestled with. And may I say that the answers throughout the ages have been many and varied. Sometimes even in the New Testament, Paul wrestled with those who disagreed with him on this. When he came into Athens, you may recall in Acts 17, there was especially a reference to those that were Stoics and those that were Epicureans. Their philosophies are different than the one we're about to describe because our interest is the biblical philosophy. Why are you here and why am I here? Let's develop it like this. The purpose of life, the whole thrust of that dash, had better be to glorify God. That's all of it. You and I were placed up here for a purpose and we were placed here for a mission and that mission is to glorify and to sanctify the God of heaven. You'll notice these passages I would ask you to notice, and then we're going to come to the lesson text that Brother Dennis read in our hearing earlier. In Isaiah 43, verse number 7, this was a description admittedly of ancient Israel. God says, I made them for my glory. That was the whole reason the nation of Israel was ever established in the ancient era, to glorify the God of heaven, to lift high the banner of His will, to carry out His message and His commandments. Not only that, you may notice in Philippians 3, beginning in verse 7, Paul in the New Testament referred to himself 
in language as poignant as these. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and to count them but dung, that I may win Christ and be found in Him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but the righteousness which is of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. That's reading through the end of verse number 9. Paul said, I count everything but loss, but what? The excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. What about you and me? What about your dash and mine? Is it founded squarely upon the knowledge of Christ so that that is the full meaning of your life and all that, that is related to it? I trust that it is. I hope that it is for all of us. The meaning of the dash maybe leads us to a few observations of failures. I thought it'd be remiss not to at least notice some Bible characters that made a mistake in this regard. They did not have the will of God as their focus. They did not have the thrust of His being and glorification as their goal. Case in point would be Daniel chapter 4. You remember Nebuchadnezzar, the mighty Babylonian monarch, the king, if you please. He was one who lifted himself up in excellency and pride and majesty with no thoughts of God. No thoughts of eternity in that regard. And you remember that God came to him. And in that pride says, Because you haven't in fact remembered me, I'm going to punish you. And for seven long years he lived like an animal of the field. We see what begins to happen when that commissioning isn't understood. One chapter later is another example at the close of Daniel chapter 5. And I think the words are so, so very directive. Belshazzar was the Persian monarch at the time. And you may remember a hand appeared and wrote some things on a wall. Me, knee, me, knee, tekel, ufarsin, it wrote. Belshazzar was puzzled about the significance of it, and Daniel was called to interpret it. And with regard to the third word, tekel, this is what God meant. You've been weighed in the balances, Belshazzar, and found wanting because you have not glorified the God of heaven. The main error that Belshazzar was guilty of, he had failed to glorify God. Before that chapter is over, he died. May I ask, what about your dash and mine? Are you glorifying God each and every day? Is your life an open testimony to the truth of His Word? A moment ago in that poem, Mr. Tranmore wrote about the significance of the dash. Maybe in light of it, why don't we come to our lesson text of Ecclesiastes 12. Although it was penned so long ago, doesn't it still speak volumes? Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep His commandments. This is the whole duty of man. Why am I here? I'm here to fear God and keep His commandments. Why are you here? You're here to fear God and keep His commandments. We all are. And if we do that, then that dash will be very meaningful. It'll be influential in a good way to those about us. And it'll be that which, of course, will glorify the greatness of the God of heaven. And we can leave this life knowing that we have carried out the duties and the work God gave us to do. The focus of your life and mine asks us to appreciate the wisdom then in that Ecclesiastes 12. The whole duty of man. What about your dash? And what about mine? 
We need to make changes if changes are in order because we aren't promised tomorrow. Death could come at any moment. The Lord Jesus could come back at any time. As we conclude our lesson, what about your dash? Is it a dash that's reflective of good things like godliness, faithfulness, obedience, and honesty? Or is it a dash that reflects more upon the work of the devil? Dishonesty and ungodliness and disobedience and unfaithfulness. Is it a dash that you know is not what God would have it to be? You realize as long as there's still life within you, there's time to reflect upon a correction to the dash if that's needful. Because after all, the day of your death hasn't come yet. What about the meaning of your dash? What about the dash of your life and of mine? Being a faithful member of the body of Christ is the way to have that dash shining brightly. Didn't Jesus say, you're to be like a city set on a hill. You're to be like a light that gives light unto all the house. Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 to 16. But currently, if your light's not shining very brightly, maybe again as a Christian for many years, you have allowed the light to fade and your dash is not as noteworthy as it ought to be. Why not come back to your first love? Why not again relight the flames of power and might and faithfulness within your life? If we could pray to God on your behalf, we'd be happy to do that today. In fact, it'd be so exciting to approach God for the forgiveness of your sins. But may I say, if you have never become a Christian, right now your dash doesn't have much to say at all about glorification of God because you've never begun to glorify Him through Jesus. And Ephesians 3.21 says that's the way we glorify God today. It's in the church. So if you're not in the church, you're not bringing glory to God. If we could help you today in that regard, the baptismal waters behind me are prepared. The only way to enter the church, according to 1 Corinthians 12.13, is to be baptized into it. There's no other way. So you need to believe in Jesus, repent of your sins, and confess His name, and then be baptized. And if we could help you today to put your dash in order... We'd sure be delighted to do it. If right now we could help anybody, why don't you come while together we stand and while we sing?